The music that you've just listened to is written by Jeremy Casella, played by Indelible Grace, written by William Williams. My goodness. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. You can listen to more of that and some of the, more, some of the hymns that they've redone on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, wherever you want. And uh, go check out our website as well, 28sojourner.com. And uh, give us a rating on Apple. Give us a rating wherever we are. And um, let's keep talking. All right. Now, uh, we've, we've done a good long, I don't know, thing on, on, on Fesco. Not a review, not a, not a, you know, trying to give you the ins and outs of the book per se, but just really a, a way uh, to sustain some reflection on baptism and cover, you know, some perhaps more of the unusual angles. Uh, otherwise, the discussion gets old, and these are very helpful um, uh, books and ways to approach it. So we've looked at um, a, an article and we've looked at this and we might, you know, do something else and then come back to uh, another another uh, issue regarding baptism and, and pin something else down. But um, we are, uh, you know, in chapter 10, I think what, there are 15 chapters, something like that in the book. And um, I think uh, from here, from me personally, I, I, this is kind of the, the one I wanted to look at um, I've been sort of uh, alluding to it the whole time. But um, after this, he gets more into the systematic theology side of things. And um, I think the only thing I want to talk about is how this view plays into the, the more sa- sacramental side of things and uh, perhaps the more real presence view. I think that's quite a fascinating um, subject. And um, I think he would d- do it some justice there from what I've skimmed. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking. I'm looking forward to looking at that. But then after that, I think I, I'm done with the book. I don't know what, what you you feel. Um, yeah, I'm super excited about the last part. Okay, all right. So we might, <laughs> we might get a little bit more out of it. That's. I good. mean, just to give you the last part is baptism as means of grace. Yeah. Baptism as a sacrament. Baptism proper, namely institution, formula, and mode. The recipients of baptism, and then the difficulties. When is a baptism not a baptism, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Cool. So nuts and bolts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think at that level, it sort of overlaps with a lot of the other material on baptism, you know, so it's kind of a little bit less exciting. The, the thing that I like about Fesco is the way he's driving this particular view, and he'll weave it through those systematic categories, which, um, you know, you don't often see too much. So where that's coming through, I want to just have a look at that. And so we might might not spend as long as we have up until this point on the book, but uh, we'll see how we go. We'll just kind of keep it casual and move through and move forward. Um, and uh, you know, it, there are some other books that we wanted to look at. I mean, you know, just some classics. I think the the um, you know the What's his name again? Our Jewett. favorite guy, Jewett. Um, Jewett, you know, we've got to at least just touch that sometime. And then, you know, H.M. Carson, we've got that. So, but, you know, maybe we need to take a little break of baptism after this. So, whatever, we'll, sure. we'll see how we go. And We've uh, been immersed in it. We have been immersed, totally, the way we should, <laughs> the way all good Baptists should. Um, all right. So, anyways, we're looking at baptism as eschatological judgment, um, which in... Uh, this book is, you know, really what you, you could look at at By Earth Consigned. We've mentioned this a few times, but in that last bit of By Earth Consigned, Meredith Klein really brings this home. And this is um, something that I think, you know, he really pinned down and Fesco is leaning on and borrowing from and so forth. Um, but it's very clear, very helpful. And so let's just work through some of these ideas, which are really, I don't know, just amazing anyway. And I, you know, I'll say a friend, I'm very much in agreement with everything both Klein and Fesco say. Um, I suppose the the little, you know, the little pin comes out there when when we talk about how this could possibly apply to to baptism. And I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Just in that very last section of Klein's book, if you want to see how he does it, 
um, you know, it's it's interesting to see that he basically goes, or he almost admits, I mean, I, I know a lot of Kleinians won't like what I'm about to say, but I, in my opinion, it's almost like he concedes at some level that what he set up really must lead to, you know, you, you aren't going to be able to apply this as you are with adult converts to, you know, infants. It's just not going to work the same. So you have, you have another um, principle also derived from an ancient Near Eastern sort of understanding of the covenants concerning uh, parental and household authority and so forth. And, and that becomes the driving idea, the consecration to the suzerain for, for, um, for baptizing your infants. It is connected to what he says uh, and what we'll talk about now in that because baptism is really primarily the symbol of eschatological judgment, not salvation. He doesn't have to work too hard to go, why, you know, how could you possibly apply baptism to a child, you know, who hasn't believed? Well, it's easy if baptism's all about eschatological judgment, you know, there's no need for faith at that level. But of course, that's not the full story. So we'll look at it and, um, and you know, it's very, I don't know, for me, it's always this massive tension in that I totally see the genius behind it, but I, I just wish it wasn't pushed as far as, as Klein pushed it at some yeah, level. Sure. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> Well, um, shall I, he gives a little thesis statement at the beginning. Shall I read that? Yeah, go for it. Cool. So he says, uh, the overall thesis of this chapter is that the flood is the type and the Messiah's baptism of spirit and fire is the antitype. Yeah, good. And even just Namely, before that, just before that yeah. uh, baptism is also a covenant judgment right in that it either symbolizes the burial of the body of sin or the judgment that falls on the one who uh, does not believe. So we have to uh, just keep that from what we've said already, you know, in, in terms of the circumcision overflow into baptism. Uh, but then, yeah, moving forward, that overall thesis is is yeah. essentially a helpful. So the just, overall thesis of this chapter is that the flood is the type, the Messiah's baptism is the spirit and fire is the antitype. Namely, just as God flooded the creation with water, bringing both judgment and deliverance, Jesus floods the creation with the spirit, who brings the judgment of fire. To support the thesis, it is necessary first to review the connections between the ministry of the Messiah and his outpouring of the Spirit, but also the judgment that accompanies his baptism. Second, it is vital to review the relationship between water imagery and the work of the Holy Spirit. Just going to read the whole book to us? Yeah, so... The- <laughs> That's so, a long quote. That's, that's that all I need a... to contribute. Now I'm handing it over to you. So I thought I should make my part really long. And now you can do the rest of the talk. It's, uh, the, yeah, people see straight through that kind of compensation, bro. Uh, all right. So anyways, there we go. Uh, now you don't even have to buy the book. Nick read it to you. But um, okay. So what is he doing there? He's saying, all right, here's my thesis. And it's not the normal way people approach it. It's, well, it's not abnormal, but, but it's a more specified sort of approach. And so he, need, he knows he needs to support it. And, um, and so he's going to drive the chapter with those two points. And um, I think that is helpful. So the idea of the outpouring of the Spirit, we've already spoken about by way of new creation, the eighth yeah. day, all of that. And it's, you know, go back and listen to that, that episode. Yeah, totally. Uh, because they do go together. And, you know, we're just looking at the other side of the coin because, of course, at the end, you know, there's the emergence of the new creation. But, you know, it's also the in order for a new creation to be that's the end of the old creation and so the judgment. So you've got to look at both and um, you've got to be able to see the way both work. And it is a fascinating idea. I'm, I'm almost sure that everyone listening to this will have some at some point wrestled with what baptism with the spirit and fire means, you know, uh, and, and there are a whole lot of um, interpretations there. So I think this is a great um 
interpretation and possibility. Um, and I, I feel like his uh, working through some of the grammar uh, is convincing. Um, that, that sort of binds you to, to the idea that it's one event. But, you know, obviously it's not a do or die thing. Um, but he says essentially that uh, you, you you were mentioning earlier you kind of have a slightly what should we call uh, well, it, old I mean, fashioned view or? i'm i'm still wrestling with what he's put forward okay cool all right so um I, mean, I like what he says i think his exegetical work is excellent yeah i agree with all of the connections i mean just to say where i'm agreeing mm. um inevitably christ's baptism is a judgment day brought forward mm-hmm. so it, all of those who aren't in christ have to experience the judgment day in the future and his baptism is obviously indicative of what's coming. So there must be a connection between baptism and the eschatological judgment, right. inevitably. Yeah. I like guess we see the, that uh, anyway with the cross. I mean, that's what we, we talk about. Exactly. That. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, there's inevitably there is a definite uh, connection between the two ideas. Yeah. I guess I've just always gone, gone along with the traditional, you know, where he talks about uh, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit <clears> and fire. <throat> You know, the Holy Spirit is Pentecost, mm-hmm. and fire is second uh, second coming. And would you have understood that to be, you know, the fire part would be what, like judgment? The judgment, not the judgment, and unbelievers. Got it. So the the Christians receive the Spirit, the, the unbelievers yeah. receive the fire. Yeah, okay. Because so, it talks about you know the fire burning up the chaff. Yeah. Uh, in the, in Matthew three verse twelve. So that's yeah. that's his. But what what uh, Fesco does, and this is what I'm still wrestling with, is mm. he basically says that Spirit and fire should be taken as two parts of a single event mm-hmm. um, indicating the cursing and judgment elements. And of course he applies that in certain ways. So I'm still wrestling. Um, I'm seeing what he's saying and I'm, I'm just, just sitting with it for a while. Yeah. Good. And yeah, I mean, you know, I think he makes some good points here, both um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire are governed by one preposition. So you got the N pneumati agio kepuri. So that's the, the whole, um, you know, the, the driving force behind some of the grammatical, um, you know, gluing together of those ideas. But even even beyond that, you know, even if you, it's like what I kept thinking about is even if you do take that, that, um, that view that you just mentioned and he does here as well. I mean, you know, at some level, you you are saying theologically, you, you end up having to say the same thing anyway, because like, you know, the, the reason that fire at the end does not also destroy you is because in some sense that fire has been poured out prior, you know, and, and in what Christ has done and therefore done you being joined to him has done for you, you know, it's happened to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've yeah. It's another way of talking about having gone through the judgment, essentially. <clears throat> so, you know, we've gone through that fire and, and that is something that's connected to what happens when we are baptized in the Spirit. So um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you don't really have to make too much of a big deal out of this. But I think it is helpful just to nail it down. And so let's roll with what he's saying for a while there. I think, um, uh, you know, I'm personally, I, th- I feel like uh, I feel convinced that that it makes sense because um, he goes through the, the Old Testament and talks about this fire of purification idea. And um, and then, you know, I think one of the big moments for me is just, well, you know, you've got obviously the fire that does not consume. The Lord is a consuming fire. And, you know, all these manifestations, these theophanies of the fire. And then when uh, Pentecost happens, you know, this is the obvious thing that John the Baptist has been talking about. And, um, you know, Jesus has been talking about. And, the, the you know, it's the new creation. Yeah. So when this happens... Um, you've got this eschatological event. We know that from Joel, uh, at least from the quote from Joel, from Peter's sermon. I mean, you know, all of this is already settled in our theology. 
uh, why the tongues of fire? You know what I mean? Like, what, what's going on there? It just seems yeah. to me like a very helpful way to explain what's happening there in that not only do you have, I don't know if you've looked at the whole way in which the, the menorah lamp is basically lit up in the temple uh, and they stand then for the, it's coming from Zechariah's um, prophecy. Exactly. So basically they, they are, uh, you know, the, t- the, the lamp is always, the, the menorah lamp in the temple has always stood for God's saving presence and in this, you know, his, his um, the, the holy place kind of idea. And, um, and so, you know, just the idea of tongues of fire you know, now presenting the church as that lamp, the, the you know the apostles are, are is pretty powerful on its own right. But even so, that's not that's not at odds with this idea that the fire itself. It, it's almost like they are the burning bush now, in some sense, or the reflection of that burning bush. They are they bear the fire that does not consume, and that's not because they are somehow in themselves, you know, uh, not worthy of being consumed because of their sins, but because all of it has already been consumed there's nothing left to consume um and so you know that fire that that very fire that will be poured out at the end the very lake of fire essentially the 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 very presence of god and wrath of god um is to them a the 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 presence that does not consume the very glory of god i remember reading about this uh in augustine and um in in uh, uh the the two cities and um it, it basically, you know, he, he, he speaks he speaks in this way. He says, you know, when God is finally unveiled, that very fire of his glory, that very luminescent reality will be to some hell as it is to some heaven, you know, depending on whether we have a mediator. I think I think um, Horton has referred to something similar when he talks about, you know, Luther and seeing the naked God and that's not heaven, it's hell and so forth. But basically the idea is, you know, God is the one that, we want he's the goal the visio dem and you know here you are you you, you either are going to see him without a mediator that is it's he god's not going anywhere you're never going to stop seeing him so that's hell if you don't have a mediator yeah. uh you know and and yet this is the very reality so i think you know that it makes sense that if that future comes crashing in to the present Fire is a very suitable symbol. really i mean you couldn't ask for a better <laughs> here they are being consumed by the by the by the fire of God and yet not consumed yeah. because of their and new standing in Christ as the new so, creation. So Fesco is basically taking this idea of the, the spirit, which is linked with fire and the spirit, which is linked with water. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the fire baptism flood, hyphenated words. <laughs> oh, I like, wonder where you got that stuff from. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so, yeah, well, that's it. The fire baptism flood. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, because that's it all, you know, it's all together. And, and even just, you know, the flood thing really does drive it home. That redemptive judgment idea where, you know, the, it's not that there was a judgment and then on a completely different sort of picture in a completely different setting, there was a, a redemption. That's not how it works. It's like the judgment is the very means through which to redeem those who have trusted in the Lord through this ark, you know? And so for, for the one, the very same thing is for the one, his undoing and the other, uh, you know, a, a lifting off to the new creation. So, uh, you know, you can imagine, um, you know, hearing the screams of those who are dying in the flood and yet being in the ark at that point. Um, and that's really, I mean, that's Pentecost. That's the, that's the very thing that's going on. Yeah, they are experiencing the, the foretaste of the new creation, which will be a judgment for everyone around them, but they are not um, 
they are not consumed. Uh, it's yeah. it's their you know the cross has shown it to be the redemptive judgment for them. So um, again, you know, just just sort of um, moving around on these same themes, but but super important, I think. I mean, this is this oh, for definitely. me when I got onto this. I mean, this was like ah. Uh, now the whole cross makes sense and wrath and atonement feels like everything just locks in and you know you're never going to leave the cross at that point you know it's it's like yeah. the whole bible has been become focused for you exactly so yeah. uh, i mean this just takes it out of the auto into the story doesn't it yeah so that, totally. you know it's it's more than just my personal experience of salvation mm. it's more than me just receiving jesus to come and live inside of me it's it's signaling something i'm part of a bigger story mm. and there's a judgment that's coming and and so baptism is more than just an individualistic thing totally it's 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 signaling a much bigger story that's going on man how di- and even just the tongues thing and the way you know, the way the the new humanity you know unified now the reversal of exactly. Babel, the things we spoke about before coincide with that event it, it all makes perfect sense oh my goodness here's yeah. the dawn of a new humanity oh my goodness it's focused upon christ oh wow he's the true mountain this is the true mountain that's not consumed yeah. this is the temple this is the menorah lamp this is you know it's just like <laughs> everything just falls into place like this massive yeah. jigs- jigsaw puzzle at that point which feels right it is that climactic moment in history so yeah to turn that kind of stuff into you know and you know i don't know what the fusion of what baptism and charismatics have done <laughs> It's like, dude, it's it's just not good. I mean, you know, not only does it become about your own personal experience of being baptized as well, a it's second about, it's event. Well, it's about you receiving your personal prayer language, isn't it? Isn't that what it's all about? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, that was funny. Uh, you know, we were play- kidding around with Greek and Hebrew the other day. Uh, one of the listeners, uh, and you, you know who you are, um, said he, he thought we were breaking out in tongues. <laughs> We were. We, we were. <laughs> and that's tons of the new creation. No, um, so, you know, what, one of the things there is just to, as you say, pull it out, not even out of the order, but out of what commonly is thought about in that experience. So, I mean, wow, you know, you're going from, from this maligned experience in church practice today where everyone's hunting for their own individual existential yeah. encounter to really something that is like fundamentally connected to the cross and ascension and resurrection in, in, in the in the historia. And and then you can see how you're in that story once you've once you've yeah. seen that and it's it's really simple you know you are in the church you you've been united to Christ that's all you need to say when you came to, when you came to faith um, you're part of that new creation so um, anyway so he goes he goes in from all of that to think about um, this this idea of the new creation again let me just read this little section that I highlight I highlighted just just before he gets onto the fire of wrath in in Isaiah four verse five. He says, Isaiah refers to the new creation as the prophet says that the Lord will bara, create, which is a word used of divine creative activity, such as in the initial creation, Genesis 1 verse 1. What will the Lord create? He will create a dwelling for the remnant. And the prophet describes the dwelling in terms of the Spirit's exodus activity, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There's I mean, I hadn't made that connection before, but it seems so obvious now. You've got this. Yeah, pillar of fire. Yeah. This uh, dwelling will be a shelter, a canopy, a refuge for God's people. Thus, there are clearly positive aspects of the baptism of fire for for the people of God who are redeemed from Egypt, as it were. Um, But, you know, obviously. Yeah, I mean, just if you go back to uh, remember Pharaoh's armies are chasing Israel out of Egypt. Yeah. And then overnight they have to wait at the banks of the Red Sea before it opens up. On the one side, it's fire. On the other side, it's cloud. Totally. But it's the same pillar. 
same pillar and even just darkness, the darkness on one side fire on the other yeah exactly yeah that's a great point and that's what we've been saying right it's it's that idea of redemptive judgment again or even just as they go through the the red sea the yeah. the one you know the very the very events of the red sea is for the one their destruction for the other uh you know their 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 yeah. actual means of delivery so it's it's um it's all through the, the the scripture it's this dual purpose redemptive judgment so i don't deny that at all and i think that's really yeah. helpful to bring out redemption is through judgment either it's through christ's judgment or yeah. you have to suffer the judgment yourself and so, you, you'll never get through that amen amen yeah. we have to we have to stay on that point now it's true also just that you do have this covenant curse side manifest in um uh, in the in the fire issue, did you want to add anything else before we move there? No. Go okay. Ahead. Good. So he says, um, you know, you've got very specific references of this in in the scripture, um, Deuteronomy. Won't read them now, but um, uh, he says Jesus not only mentions that he has come to cast fire on the earth, which is a reference to judgment, but he makes reference to his own baptism, which is an outpouring of judgment upon himself. So there's the connection we've been talking about the fire element which is explicitly spoken of as judgment has been poured out by way of baptism on christ already um did you read that james dunn summary because james Dunn's yes. the dodgy guy right <clears throat> i mean I, yep, I, he's, I he's a new check. perspective on paul yeah. guy but he's got a few good good insights i had to go and double check if it was the same james dunn because i was <laughs> so is. taken by this quote and I, you know, and I was like, this cannot possibly be James Dunn. Oh, no. Um, yeah. But wow, it shows. I mean, you know, there we go. You got to read widely because um, this is yeah, great. Even N.T. Wright gets it right sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, it's dangerous ground, though. I mean, especially on the stuff that we're talking about. I just, I, I was really interested to see how he works that through, you know, in any new perspective sense, because, you know, I mean, my goodness. Let me read the quote and you'll see what I mean um, for yeah. anyone listening. Um all right, here's my long quote for the day. In short, he says, The baptism of the Spirit and fire was not to be something gentle and gracious, but something which burned and consumed, not something to be experienced by only Jew or only Gentile, only repentant and unrepentant, but by all. It was the fiery pneuma or pneuma in which all must be immersed as it were and which like a smelting furnace would burn up all impurity for the unrepentant it would mean total destruction for the repentant it would mean a refining and purging way of all evil and sin which would result in salvation and qualify to enjoy the blessings of the messianic kingdom these were the sufferings which would bring in the messianic kingdom it was through them that the repentant would be initiated into that kingdom what a great passage. I mean, that's yeah. that's exactly what, you know, it's just a fairly eloquent way of, of, of putting it all. Um, but baptism then is an eschatological judgment. It's it's universal. Now, uh, the way this all, uh, this is where we need to t- spend a little moment just talking about how this, because um, he does he does go into the new, the new Testament and stuff, but I think we get the point. So now the issue is why would, um, you know, if this is the case, how on earth are you going to apply this to anything, anyone else but those who believe, right? I mean, this seems like, for me, quite a no-brainer that it's just, yeah. if it, to the degree that this is all true, you know, you really are, you, you're, you really want to baptize into the ark. <laughs> you don't want to throw people overboard, you know? It's just like, that. that's, 
it seems like if you don't have the ark in view, if you don't have this profession of faith saying, I'm in the ark, I believe in the ark, I've, I've entered the ark, then you are essentially, you know, saying, give me the flood, you know, and Amen. it's just, I, I, that, that, that worries me with the, with the application to, to infant baptism. Uh, I, I think what he's going to do is take this through the systematic ringer and basically, um, you know, bring it out that, that you know, the, the, because we have this widened, you know, symbol of baptism now. It's not just about blessing, but it's about new creation and judgment. You can therefore apply it legitimately with both of those senses in view. So basically, um, you have adult believing convert. He professes faith. You apply it. If it's true that he is, you know, truly a believer, then amen. You know, that's the one sense applies. If it's not, the other sense applies. That part I'm fine with. But then the um the you know the assumption that that carries through to infants um who basically it doesn't even matter if they don't believe it's just you you baptize them almost with, with the primary uh emphasis there being on the judgment side because there really can't be any sort of arc evidence so to speak and yeah. and so you're trusting that if you know this thing is you know holds in their heart somehow they'll eventually come to faith and hop in the ark at some point and you know and and, and things will be okay but you know it, it just frees them up to to be able to um you know, baptize all around. So I don't know. For me, I mean, that's just like, oh, you know, I, it, it just it takes the wonderful idea, the the, the beautiful concept, and it, it abuses it. You know, yeah. it abuses the concept because it tries to it tries to crank it open in an illegitimate way. The whole point here is to be able to go as surely as you go under those waters and have been lifted up from under those waters, you are now passed through that judgment beyond probation. Amen. There is no assurance. Assurance. I mean, and the whole deal for you must not be at that point to go, well, it could go either way, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, because I mean, my yeah. goodness, it, it, that would be exactly like not getting baptized, you know? And, yeah. and that would be to undo the whole point, in my opinion. So... Yeah, it seems, you know, I'd, just to compare it to another discussion, you know, some people would say, well, don't take the gospel to other nations because as soon as you tell a Muslim that he has to accept Jesus, you make him more accountable. Mm, exactly. So it's better not to go just in case he gets there on his own. So, you know, the inclusivist approach. I mean, true that. So and that's like, what, I mean, Andre brought that point up uh, when it was last, uh, one of the, one or two shows ago where he was like, it feels almost like, wait a minute, just don't, but, you know, leave your kids <laughs> out of this if this is what you're getting them into. Yeah. You're getting them into... Now, I, I appreciate, one of the points I do appreciate is especially from the Kleinian side, they've made a lot of attempt. I mean, because a lot of the thing... Um, whenever you hear about baptism mediating wrath to an infant and so forth, it, it, the part I really uh, object to is that that's the wrath of the new covenant, you know, as a, as a dual sanction there, um, which, you know, thankfully, thankfully, Kleinians have seen through and, and called foul on. And, yeah. and basically, you know, they will talk about the wrath element being that wrath that is ours and their covenant of works in Adam rather than anything in the new covenant. So they've seen that. And that made that for me, it almost like takes a massive load off, you know, and you just basically can, can, uh, you know, join hands again and kind of work through the details because that's the big, I, you know, I get freaked out when I hear that kind of thing. I mean, that really it almost, like put, it makes the new covenant and the mosaic covenant the same thing, which is just a, a scary idea. But, um, but, you know, it's still, I mean, it, you know, if you're going to say that you're baptizing someone into the new covenant and yet the wrath element that is theirs falls back onto the covenant of works in Adam, it's almost just, where is that coming from? You know, it's just not, I mean, I understand that it's true ultimately, but how yeah. can that be something you would actively baptize someone into? It's true. of the And anyway. uh, I guess it's a distinction without a difference in this sense that 
let's say you baptize your child believing that if they don't believe, they get judgment. Mm -hmm. What about the unbeliever who's never been baptized? Exact same outcome. Exact same outcome. And, you know, I think that is... um, that is a real challenge. I mean, I've heard it put forward to, you know, um, you know, one of the things that was really good actually was um, listening to Michael Brown, who I really appreciate as a, you know, he's written one of the best little intro yeah. books on covenant theology. And uh, Sam Renihan, we're, we're discussing this on, I think it was the New Geneva podcast, if I'm not mistaken. So if anyone's interested, they can go check that out. Um, check, that, check out the archives and listen to that discussion. Uh, it was about the differences between a kind of more Kleinian position and a, you know, a 1689 Federalist position. It shows the great similarity of the two positions. But, um, you know, one of the things that Sam put forward there is is similar, you know. Well, you know, w- what is different then? You know, what is different about why would you just not baptize everyone, basically? And he did, I wish I could remember it offhand, but he did quote something from Charles, uh, I think it was Charles Hodge uh, or, or A. Hodge, um, concerning, you know, a, almost a concession to this idea that there is a kind of, you know, a, a universal aspect to it and uh, quite a scary, you know, concept. So uh, Brown hadn't it's heard a, of it. A return to national churches. <laughs> yeah, it was something along those lines. I'm, I'm just actually dig it up and I'll bring it up next time. But, um, but you know, it was just, um, you know, the, the, I, Michael Brown did say that, well, it's like it's something to the effect that basically, you know, it, you. This is the difference. You basically know they are coming to church. You know that you are going to. There is an accountability placed on a covenant child that is not really, you know, automatically going to be placed on everyone in the world. They they're not going to know about um, the gospel to the to the to the extent that you can have the confidence to actually apply the sign, right? And and one of the things that did hit home for me in, in that discussion was that they. Um, you know, they're basically the reason for that the need for a family member to believe is not so much as the traditional version of the proxy faith idea, but more, yeah. but more the who, how, you know, we can't believe unless we know this child is going to be brought up in in a, a in a household that will hear the gospel, and that that's the necessity. So they've tweaked that idea and and have tried to make a distinction then between the the world and the, and, and the you know the people in the the church and. Um, but but you know and and all that might be true and I think we've said this before I mean basically we all agree on that stuff anyway the issue is it's just not the grounds for applying the sign uh, you know on this yeah. basis anyway my goodness this is uh, you know just because you are this would be the weakest argument to try and argue for infant baptism I think so I think <laughs> if you so. started here this would be terrible yeah I know yeah this would be like the last block to put in place after a long discussion totally on that side yeah. Well, yeah, and, and you know, I think again, you see it where where Klein just like spearheads this whole idea, and then you you know you end up just almost like, dude, has he gone Baptist? This is crazy. And then you get to the last chapter, and he's like, well, there's this other thing going on. Uh. <laughs> and um, I always describe it like a dangling pot in an engine. You know, you got this like beautiful engine. You lift the hood; it's all everything works together in the engine. You know, I don't know anything about engines, but I, I assume they all every part works together right you don't want it's usually a bad thing when you have a sort of bolt lying around uh, if you put the engine together but um you know it feels to me like you got everything in the bible working together for this to create this roaring v8 you know sound uh as you put it all together and switch it on and then as you drive the car away you've got this like piece of 
you know, uh, fishing line holding a, a bolt to the engine dangling along, you know, on the ground, this little remnants of circumcision that wants to come with, but it really has no yeah. place in the engine. So it's just annoying. And, you know, it really, you don't lose anything by just chopping that guy. You just chop it off and really, you know, the engine works exactly the same way. And, and that's, uh, you know, I realize it's horribly offensive to anyone that's, that's you know, has, has bought in. To that idea but that's honestly where i'm at with it so um you know always open to discussion to see where i've gone wrong on that point yeah. but but i think that's um that's kind of why i'm so interested in this book because it it, it 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 together with klein builds up what i think can be a massive addition and really almost you know it's negligent that baptists haven't been the ones to put this forward first you know or, yeah. or should, you know uh, driving this forward but this is baptist theology as it should be in my Amen. opinion, you know, it's rich and biblical, rich and biblical, and just drives the whole thing. So maybe we should uh, let, yeah. let me share a few thoughts on the Lord's Supper because you know, as for yes, one, so point. for yeah, the yeah, other. Yeah. Yes, great. You know, in uh, you know the the Peter Baptist Presbyterian approach to the Lord's Supper would be very similar. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> just as baptism symbolizes Christ's judgment or you being judged, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Lord's Supper symbolizes the cross. Mm -hmm crucifixion circumcision symbolizes the cutting off in crucifixion mm -hmm. and so uh if you don't judge yourself 1 corinthians 11 you'll be cut off mm -hmm. and there's there's the covenant curse aspect kicking in mm -hmm. and uh, i shared with you a bit earlier but here's my here's the trouble i have with that and probably the distinction i'd want to introduce at that point um that in 1 corinthians 11 paul makes very clear that the christian who didn't judge themselves who probably because being in a first century context, apostolic signs and miracles going on around them, like Ananias and Sapphira, you know, very strict uh, judgments kick in in that mm -hmm. particular context. Mm -hmm. uh, they're cut off in death. Um, <clears throat> that's an act of discipline. It's not an act of judgment. And yeah. that person died and went to heaven and wasn't cut off from the covenant in the way that Christ was cut off yeah. under the full wrath of God. And mm -hmm. so for me, there's, there's not a good parity there. No, totally. And once, once you move into the new covenant, because in the old covenant, when you were cut off, uh, you were cut off from the land of the living, though you could still go to heaven like yeah. Moses. Yeah. But yeah. Now, now, now that Christ has realized the cutting off aspect and now all the types have been stripped away and now we're just left with the raw reality of judgment. Yeah. Uh, that's not what's being applied in 1 Corinthians 11. It's discipline, not judgment. Hmm. And so... It's often used as a proof text to fight for the judgment, covenant, curse angle, but it speaks of discipline and fatherliness as yeah. opposed to curse and unadoption. And the thing is, you know, it, it, it almost does bridge into the conversation about, you know, the the externality of the covenant and, the you know, the apostasy passages and so forth. We'll leave that for another time. But basically, um, you know, the, it's almost a mute point to me because it, taking exactly what we've said about baptism let's say it was about judgment somehow you know let's say you you put it the, the judgment was the judgment in adam and you know you did the whole twist again and you know i mean there it is so explicit just just making that connection between what is true for the one and is true for the other we always do this anyway with any baptist argument against the presbyterians or pedobaptists well you know we'd, we'd talk about the consistency there and uh perhaps the inconsistency of their view but i think it really comes out when you look at this sort of thing because you know no one goes into that going well you know, it could be the flood, could be the ark. Don't know. You know, as, as I receive the bread, as I receive the wine, you know, as I place my trust in Christ, you know, I, I, well, we'll just we'll just see. I'm just entrusting myself to this. Well, you know, Luther intimate. believed that strongly and Calvin didn't. So there was a difference of opinion between Luther and Calvin even on that point. 
what exactly did they disagree on you mean so luther believed it's judgment you could be partaking for judgment if you don't partake with faith yeah calvin was like there's definitely blessing but there's no judgment okay yeah interesting and then as reformed thought developed it included the judgment element well you know I'm for not different even, covenantal reasons totally now i'm not even so worried about that I, i'm more worried about like when you go into it i mean like let's say even under a lutheran perspective there let's say that you know you had a sort of mindset i mean it's not like it's not like you're going to be wanting or, or you know feeling neutral about it let's put it that way you know if it's it's a warning certainly that you know at worst you could be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself um, if you're doing so in an unworthy manner but that's the whole point right there i mean like don't do it in an unworthy manner you know so i think that goes through to the baptism so if you partake without faith is it the unforgivable sin because you're realizing judgment at that point if you partake without faith, it's like a Rubik's Cube, bro. What am I supposed to do with that? Does it become the unforgivable sin? Oh, no, I partook the, of the Lord's Supper without faith. I brought the judgment of God upon myself. I'm now judged. I can't unjudge myself. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's going all hyper-Calvinist on a Lutheran perspective. <laughs> it's this junk cup of tea. <laughs> let's not go down that rabbit hole. Well, no, let's not. Um, but... You know, coming back to the issue, though, I mean, basically, you, you know, if if you're going to admit that point in any way under any one of those rubrics, and saying, I, "Well, actually, I don't want to partake in an unworthy manner, and therefore, I do want to be you know, the yeah. reason for my application of this sign to myself on a weekly or monthly or whatever basis," you know, is because I want, I am the, every intention here is to be in the Lord. Amen. You know, it, there is no neutrality about the whole thing or, or sort of a divided. So why would you do that with the kids? I mean, it's just, you know, I think that's a big point. Um, you know, you're going into this going redemptive judgment, redemptive judgment, as in my salvation. You're not going into it going, well, both, you know, we'll see. And what's ironic like is that they the would say, yeah. because there is a judgment element mm-hmm. and you have to judge yourself, kids can't have the Lord's Supper. Exactly. But they can receive the baptism. Exactly. This is what I'm saying. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. So, I mean, you know, that's the inconsistency right there. Why would you do that? Why would you apply? I mean, you don't want to do that. So anyway, um, you know, it's kind of the point we've brought up before, but just with this particular angle on it now. And, um, you know, just, you know, if this is true, if Fesco's argument is true, then I think that really gives cause for, you know, just standing back and going, hang on, wait a minute, what are we actually doing here with our kids, you know? Um, And so hopefully with that, the debate yeah. has now ended and yeah there's you bring judgment on your kids and here's another one i heard when i was at bible college uh the lecturer who was once a baptist who became a peter baptist he uh he shared the story of keturah you know uh, was it keturah moses wife mm-hmm. oh zipporah Cut, zipporah Zip, yeah zipporah? yeah, yeah. C- cutting the foreskin and touching his foot with it right and saying you see what happens if you don't baptize your kids boom <laughs> <laughs> the angel of the covenant is going to come and get you. <laughs> wow. So, and he actually preached that in, in the class no way. saying, this is one of the reasons why I became a Peter Baptist. And I, I feel that I must baptize my kids because God might do this to me. Yeah. I, I feel the sense of judgment and threat. Totally. I was like, what? Now it's interesting because, you know, as, because that idea is obviously very serious in the old Testament and whatnot with the yeah. circumcision pointing forward to Christ pointing to this reality that either you're in Christ or you're you know out of Christ and cut off. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the bloody right averts the wrath of God, and there's something about that that, you know, foreshadows the cross, and and uh, I think we, we've mentioned all of that already. But, but, you know, that's the whole idea right there. I mean, to 
if that's true still do you know what i mean like it's just it's, it's like, like a slam step down. out of the new covenant back i feel like i'm at sinai do not touch this mountain exactly exactly wow yeah no totally i haven't i haven't actually heard anyone go that far thankfully but you know i can see how i mean you almost have to to be consistent yeah. again um all right there we go. So there we go. That's um, join us for another two at least more episodes on uh, Fesco, maybe three, maybe four. We'll see how we go. But uh, we do. I want to take this now. See, this is why I'm so interested because I want to take this idea now, which really seems at some level to defy the the real presence notion, you know, because really the you know the idea is that you know if it's especially especially if it's you know broadening it out that it could be you know, the, the the whole point of baptism here is to speak about the covenant judgment and and so forth you know how are you going to reconcile that with with what is normal uh, amongst the means of grace and he works hard to show that the, he's trying to find the means of grace and, and there's a lot of it that i agree with as, but but i agree with it as a baptist so i think it's a super interesting chapter to come back to um yeah. but we got to have this as a background this is the basic bedrock for, for everything we'll think about them um mm. so anyways Hopefully that helped. Uh, go check out um, Fesco's book and um, anything else we need to close off with. Go listen That's to apparently good. what was great news is that uh, was it Todd White? Who? who, who uh, Bethel. We're now rid of racism. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, talking about tongues and everything, we should at least mention this. Yes, Bethel has uh, officially <clears throat> basically bound racism in the human race. Perfect. And uh, the inspiration for that was Lord of the Rings, you know, where Gandalf says, thou shalt not pass. Yeah. So there was a moment, just so, if you, just so you know this, mm-hmm. when, when you felt the racism leave your heart, it's because they took a moment where they all stood, they all held a staff, mm-hmm. they got the church to stand up, and they, and, and they said, together, thou shalt not pass. So no, the, the warrant was the Lord of the Rings in Gandalf's example. And, and, and racism is now gone. So good news, everyone. Whew. The human race has been delivered from racism. It's a real relief. It's kind of like the time when uh, I heard a guy bind uh, Satan, you know, uh, and cast him into the abyss. Well, we were all just, you know, praying and wow. he stood on the chair. Started the millennium. Sure. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, well, let's go home. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so that's a true story. Go check that out. That, where did you find that? Like, is that on? Uh, on someone on, sent it to me. Just, just go Google it. Bethel, yeah. <laughs> Bethel ends racism. I'm oh, sure it'll come up. My goodness. Can you believe it? That's why we've got to keep our theology straight, folks. That's why we got to do it. All right. On that point, here we go. Playing out. Mm-hmm.